episode 269, COVID-19, Prepping for the Next Wave. What payers and providers should be doing right now to get ready. Today, I speak with Dr. Eric Bricker. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. The first wave of this COVID-19 pandemic has been totally reactionary. Don't get me wrong, that does not detract from the Herculean effort made by hospitals and clinicians who have thrown everything they have at this and more. But I don't think that anyone would disagree that if we had enough PPE and ventilators, you know, like proactively, we'd be in better shape. So let's stay ahead of the second wave of this pandemic, which is going to happen when, as Marty McCary put it in episode 267, the backlog of patients who were scared to or unable to get care for a few months creep out of their homes. What happens when patients who should have gotten a tumor removed or had a colonoscopy because of GI bleeding or felt the symptoms of a heart attack but did not get timely care? Today, I am speaking with Eric Bricker, MD, from A Healthcare Z, and we're talking about how the post-COVID-19 new normal may shape up. One way to conceive of what healthcare will be moving forward is to look at how stakeholders are impacted by the pandemic right now and what action steps they're taking right now. Because to a non-trivial degree, the moves made now will have an outsized impact on their success trajectory in the near term and long term in the months and years to come. I was super thrilled to have a chance to speak with Dr. Bricker. If you haven't watched his videos on LinkedIn or at ahealthcareZ.com, you should definitely go and check them out. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Eric Bricker, MD. Welcome to Relentless Health Value. Hey, thanks for having me, Stacey. I have to say, I very much enjoy the A Healthcare Z videos wherein you elucidate the problems in healthcare that challenge employers and their employees. Let's talk about COVID-19, which we are at start date, March 26th, that we're doing this recording. Before the peak, as they say, as we record this. And it is remains to be seen, but... I am very interested in your thoughts, what the impact is going to be on various stakeholders, healthcare stakeholders in the patient journey here. So why don't we start out with insurance carriers and payers? How is the COVID-19 impacting their business models? Let's just start at the high level and then maybe we can drill down a little bit. Yeah, so Stacey, that's a great question because really there are obviously ramifications at the, you know, the individual, you know, person level and family level and and community level, but just the healthcare system itself, whether it be the insurance carriers or the hospitals, doctor groups, et cetera, from just an organizational standpoint are currently being dramatically, you know, impacted by coronavirus. And so to your point, specifically on the insurance carrier side, you know, here you have a situation where their claims, like the profile of their claims that they're going to be processing is going to change dramatically or already has changed dramatically. And it's going to change in a couple of ways. First off, there has been a dramatic decrease in the number of 
elective outpatient procedures. And what do I mean by that? I mean things like hip replacements, knee replacements, some degree of spine surgery, things like colonoscopies, some things like radiology-guided injections, etc. This was because the American College of Surgeons, the CMS has recommended against doing these procedures because they don't want to expose these people who are going to have elective non-urgent procedures to potentially getting an infection while they're in the hospital with coronavirus. Okay, fine. What does that mean? That means that there are huge swaths of claims that will go dramatically down for those insurance carriers. Now, the actual number, I think the actual number of people with coronavirus as of today is in the, in the United States about 60,000 across a population of 330 million. That's actually a pretty low number. So from a claims perspective, if you're an insurance carrier for an employer, you don't really have a lot of coronavirus claims. Now, you will have some coronavirus patients that subsequently have to go into the ICU, and they'll have the really large ICU bills. But the way that the coronavirus is stacking up now, it seems to impact the elderly in a much more severe fashion than it does people of working age. And so really, a lot of those folks that are ending up in the ICUs, at least per the experience in places like China and Italy, is they're folks that are over 65. So those are really going to be folks that are on Medicare. They're not even on commercial insurance. So from a claims perspective, that's going to make the in the, in the short term. Now, who knows what's going to happen as the, you know, as the coronavirus numbers go up, but at least probably in the preceding month, two weeks, the number of claims are probably going down. And so if and this brings up an interesting point. And you actually said that you had spoken with Dr. Marty McCary about this. And look, for fully insured groups, if the claims for that carrier are going down because of the minimum loss ratio, they're going to either have to lower premiums or even potentially refund money because they've you know projected out for $10,000 per employee. So you got a, a company with 100 employees. They're like, okay, well, your premiums are going to be a million, 1.2 million. If their claims only come in at 600,000, then they're going to need to refund that you know that money because they have to have a minimum loss ratio of you know approximately eighty percent. All right, so let's talk about payers, specifically insurance carriers, those that are dealing with self-insured employers, which is a significant portion of their market. That's right. So it's about sixty percent of commercially insured Americans are on a self-funded plan as opposed to a fully insured plan. And so, in that situation, if the claims are going to be going down because of the decrease in the non-urgent elective surgeries, then it's actually the employer that's going to be saving money on the claims because the employer is just paying a fixed sort of per employee per month fee to the insurance carrier for what's referred to as administrative only services or ASO services. So in that situation, it's not that the insurance carrier is going to be quote unquote, making a ton of money because they're collecting all these premiums and not paying out claims. It's that the employers themselves, those plans are not going to be paying out as much. Now, at the end of the day, sort of the round numbers that you use would be $10,000 per employee per year. You know, for some employers, it's 15. For some employers, it's six. And that, let's say that goes down by like 20% to like $8,000 per employee per year because of the decrease in these, you know, elective procedures, yada, yada, yada. I think given the dynamic of the decrease in demand for whether it be travel services or restaurant meals or blah, 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 I think that quote unquote savings on the employer side is probably going to be dwarfed by their just lack of revenue. So I don't I don't know how much it's going to help, you know, save their business. They might still be in a real tight spot because of the way the economy is right now. 
So, so we've got 60% of a carrier's revenue coming from these ASOs that I'm assuming from what you're saying that their revenue is going to tank. So the, the carrier's revenue is going to go down because of layoffs. So if the carrier was getting, let's say, $35 per employee per month for their ASO services, then if those number of employees go dramatically down, then they get a lot less ASO revenue. And this doesn't have to be a fictitious prediction on our part, because this happened during the Great Recession of 2008-2009. You know, you have kind of two separate processes going on, right? You have coronavirus, and then you have economic recession. And the economic recession in and of itself will cause impacts to the health insurance industry and, you know, healthcare in general, just completely separate of coronavirus. Got it. So effectively, you know, we've got whole sectors here that are affected, like the service industry to a large extent. We've got the whole travel industry, the whole airline industry. So if those companies lay off a significant percentage of their employees or, or go out of business, then you've got a severely diminished market for these carriers. That's right. That's exactly right. Are there any other factors that are weighing in here that either could be helpful or harmful as it relates to these carriers? Well, the people that are going to be you know, laid off and lose their jobs, in some situations, they are going to qualify for Medicaid. So it's possible that you're going to see drastic expansion of the, the Medicaid enrollees. Now, a lot of these people will also then qualify for government subsidies on the insurance exchanges that were created as part of the Affordable Care Act. So one, that'll be increased government spending on those subsidies for the exchanges. And I think for a lot of people, if they are losing their job, they probably don't have enough money to pay for an insurance premium on their own. Like they're either going to have to be heavily subsidized or or subsidized or 100% subsidized by the government in order to be able to afford those those premiums because they're ridiculously expensive. It's like over 20 grand for a family of four. So that means that companies that do a lot of exchange business might see an increase in their revenue. So the Blue Cross plans in general across America do a lot of exchange business. And there's new companies like Oscar Health that do a lot of exchange business. So they might have a ton of more people because of the people that have lost their jobs that are now on exchanges. Meanwhile, there are other insurance carriers that do little to no exchange business. So like United Healthcare was very tepid about entering into the exchanges and Aetna was in it, but then they got out. So those companies would not then see increased revenue from increased exchange rules because they just don't do it. Now, they might start doing it, but they don't do it today. Yeah, you know, you said something interesting, Eric, the last time that we had a conversation because I said, you know, will all these employees go to Medicaid and then we're going to wind up with Medicaid for all. And you came back with a point because the example I used was, all right, so all of these waiters are going to wind up on Medicaid. Do you want to fill us in like you filled me in the other day? Sure. So... To qualify for Medicaid, is a, it, they're, they're state-run programs, so each state has their different requirements. But by and large, just, just because you're poor doesn't make you qualify for Medicaid. Oftentimes, you have to have a child that you're supporting. So if you're a single adult or if you're like a, a waiter who's a guy, doesn't have any kids, like does that, that doesn't de facto, and you don't have any money, that doesn't de facto qualify you for Medicaid. So, so some, some people, you know, single mom with, with, you know, two kids, et cetera, like she and her kids would qualify probably, but for those other people, they might have to turn to the exchanges. 
And that's why the exchanges are so important. So you could wind up on an exchange with a zero with your entire premium subsidized. So, that's right. Yeah. That's right. If you're that if you're that male waiter, that might be your outcome. And what about carriers that have recently vertically integrated, you know, so we have obviously Cigna and Express Scripts and Aetna and CVS. Are are those entities in better shape, worse shape? Interesting question. So I would say that the benefits of the vertical integration, and oh, by the way, you know, to a certain extent, United falls into that scenario as well, because they have OptumRx as their, you know, sort of integrated PBM. So they've all kind of moved in that direction. And it was really to get the PBM dollars. Okay, now PBM revenue increases with the increased prescription of medication and PBM revenue increases with the increase of expensive prescription writing. So we're not going to get into details of why that is. So we talked about decreased revenue or decreased claims coming through for elective surgeries, but you're probably going to see decreased pharmacy claims as well. So if anything... If these integrated PBM insurers are heavily relying on their PBM revenue and their PBM margins, then that revenue and that margin is probably at significant risk. Got it. And, you know, one of the reasons why I specifically called out Cigna and Aetna is because they very recently merged. I mean, the advantage that United has is that they've had Optum you know, the United Health Group has existed for quite some time. But given yep. the recency of the mergers, does that have an impact on their financial stability? My short answer to that would be yes. I actually made an A Healthcare Z video about this, and that's because at CVS had to raise a ton of debt in order to buy Aetna, and Cigna had to raise a ton of debt to buy Express Scripts. So those companies are much more in debt than, let's say, United or the large Blue Cross plan, Anthem. And so if CVS, Aetna, and Cigna Express Scripts see a large decrease in revenue, then they are going to have a harder time making their debt service payments. And so they, you know, still with billions and billions of dollars of revenue, might get into a cash crunch. And that's exactly what happened to Toys R Us, where Toys R Us was still having, you know, billions of dollars of sales, but because they had so much debt and they couldn't make their debt payments, they went out of business. Now, nobody bailed out Toys R Us, so there was not, quote unquote, economic systemic risk if Toys R Us went out of business. However, I don't know what would happen if CVS, Aetna, and Cigna Express Scripts were potentially facing, you know, bankruptcy, would they get a bailout? I don't know. There might be a strong argument to bail them out. Wouldn't that be ironic? Let's move on to ambulatory providers. We are not getting a whole lot of press at this moment as we're very, very focused on hospitals at this time. But if we're talking about ambulatory providers, you know, we just had a whole conversation about how elective surgeries are going down. Let me just level set here because I feel like if we just say ambulatory providers, that might be a little bit too much of a homogenous bunch, you know? Well, let me ask you this question. If you were going to sort of separate ambulatory providers as we discuss the impact of COVID-19 on them, how would you segment them? Yeah, I think that they segment into primary care physicians and, you know, we'll just say specialists. And it's really specialists that are proceduralists. 
So like an orthopedic surgeon or a general surgeon or a urologist or even an ENT or a gastroenterologist versus a primary care physician, which would be a, a family practice physician, internal medicine and pediatrics. And why would you segment them into those categories? So from a overall like a physician practice, I mean, it's a business specialist group versus primary care group get their revenue in very different ways. So the primary care group, they get their revenue from office visits, from seeing people, and they have or are going to be able to transition to some degree and maybe even a large degree of telemedicine for their patients. So obviously there's going to be situations where people still have to come into the doctor's office, but there's a lot of situations in primary care that, you know, when I had my resident clinic, there were a lot of people with diabetes where, yeah, I need to see them every once in a while, but there's a lot of stuff that I could have done over the phone that I did in my face-to-face office visits. And so a lot of that stuff can be done over the phone now. I was talking to Dr. Alex Lickerman, who is a direct primary care physician, and he said, the only people I'm having in the office right now are ones where I have to palpitate their abdomen because you have to do that in person, but pretty much everybody else I'm handling over the phone. I mean, they can take their own temperature. That's right. This is where, you know, there was the sort of the expedient change by Medicare, CMS, to actually reimburse physicians for telemedicine. I don't know the current stance for commercial insurance reimbursement for telemedicine, because typically, if you were going to submit a claim to Blue Cross United Signet Aetna through your regular commercial insurance plan, then you had to see the patient. And if you didn't actually see the patient, then it was like fraud. So these primary care physicians, I would say it might make sense from a national policy perspective to start having those commercial insurance payers reimburse physicians for primary care or any visits that are done via telemedicine, video conferencing, what have you, because literally there are physician practices today in late March that have already started laying off their employees and furloughing their employees because they they got to get rid of them. So just at the time where you need to have not just hospital healthcare workers, but you need to have outpatient healthcare workers. Those physician practices are not sitting on a ton of cash where they can keep supporting their payroll. So they're going to have to start laying people off themselves. Are you talking about PCPs who haven't picked up the telemedicine and remote patient monitoring revenue as of yet? That's right. And even the ones who have, I obviously keep in touch with my friends from medical school and those who are in primary care for the past two, three weeks have spent a ton of time on the phone with their patients and are getting paid very little to nothing for it. Well, it's kind of interesting, too, with the remote patient monitoring, the RPM, because that's some significant dollars. It's like 100 150 bucks a month, almost like a subscription basis that you can make. Now, granted, that's Medicare also. Well, so I think you're right. What that does is that increases the number of people that can be seen remotely as opposed to coming into the office which is is probably what we want to do, right? So to the extent that you can have, you know, basic things like a blood pressure cuff, but then also things like, you know, for people with congestive heart failure, things like a scale so you can see if they're retaining fluid and see what their weight is, to all the other things that you can do remotely, to the extent that you can do that and not have a patient come into the office and the physician group, et cetera, can get paid for that, then that would be a very attractive thing to move in. Yeah. Do you think the telehealth genie is going to get put back in the bottle? 
I feel like, you know, patients who can sit on their couch waiting room as opposed to schlepping into an office, taking a half day off of work, you know, I really feel like patients are going to be like, wow, why hasn't this been going on since the internet? And if anyone tries to take that away, there's going to be hue and cry. Do you agree? I do. There will always be certain conditions and medical situations where you can't do it over telemedicine. But there's a lot of just visit volume that historically required people to come in where you wouldn't need to do that before. So one of the big telemedicine companies that I'm, you know, very familiar with because we, you know, shared a lot of clients with them at Compass, they their like top prescriptions that they were giving people over the phone were antibiotics for UTIs, antifungals for yeast infections, and allergy and upper respiratory medications, sometimes antibiotics for upper respiratory symptoms. Now, that's only three things, but that is a lot of patient volume where people had to do the schlepping like you described. So if you can take the schlepping and really, in this case, the avoidance of potentially you know, getting infected with coronavirus, then I think that that's going to be a, a genie that is not going to be put back into the bottle, like you said. Dr. Kim Noel was on the show who completely also decimated this conventional wisdom that, you know, in quotes, old people can't do the internet. You know, first of all, old people, in quotes, are not a homogenous segment. You get some grandmas who can run circles around people half their age on the web. So even from a Medicare perspective, this is probably not something that is going to go away. And the other thing that I think of here, you know, technology, every other industry, industry reduces the price of whatever it is, except for healthcare. In healthcare, you add technology and the price tends to go up. So it it was funny when I was reading the ferocious tweets from some of the physicians complaining that the reimbursement had gone down for telehealth. I was thinking to myself, yeah, and the price of computers has, it's like one-tenth of what it was even a decade ago. This is actually what would happen in healthcare if it were any other industry. And it's kind of funny that that's not overarching thinking in this business. That's right, because telemedicine allows for geographic competition, right? The problem before was is that, you know, doctors couldn't compete with each other over large distances. But once you start having telemedicine, they can. With the removal of the the state line stipulation, that's even going to become more so. Should we move on to specialty? That is the other group that's going to be impacted in a very different way. And that's and from a revenue perspective. And that's why I brought them up, because really the clinic, the, cl- the office visit encounter for a specialist is really a driver for a subsequent procedure. It's like you see the orthopedist in the office because they're going to you know, potentially take you to the OR. You're going to see the urologist in the office because they're going to potentially do a procedure either in the office or at the hospital or the ambulatory surgery center. Likewise, with the ENT the bulk of their revenue doesn't come from their office visits. It comes from their procedures. And especially if they're like the part owner of the ambulatory surgery center where they do it, where they're not just getting the professional fee, but they're also getting part of the facility fee at the ambulatory surgery center. Their revenue is going on a percentage basis is going to go down, in my opinion, much more than a primary care physician's. Now, the, it also has more room to go down because it's those specialists. And oh, by the way, cardiologists is included in this as well, not only because of cardiac cats, but also because of the nuclear imaging that they do, the quote unquote stress tests, 
which typically are done at a at a hospital setting or in a, in a quote unquote shared facility where the, again the hospital and the physician group owns the facility together. So you're going to see a lot less cardiac stress tests for them, which you know the payment for that you know they're getting like eight nine thousand dollars for the nuclear stress test for that. Those uh, specialties, which are the most highly paid, like cardiology and orthopedics and urology and ENT, they're actually going to see their revenue, potentially see their income drop more than the primary care physicians, just because you know, a typical primary care doc's making $200,000, $250,000 a year. You know, cardiologists are making $650,000 a year. Because of the decrease in procedures, their revenue is probably just going to fall a lot more. What's your advice to them? Is it kind of just like, you know, I hope you got a couple bucks in the bank? You know what I mean? Or is there something that they could be doing right now? I mean, maybe relative to technology, like, you know, really trying to figure out how to do X, Y, and Z so that their business is less impacted or they can get back on their feet faster. An economic truism is that one person's spending is another person's income. If the entire conversation in America was that healthcare costs were too high, that is spending by individuals, it's spending by companies, it's spending by state and federal, the federal government. And then the, the other person's income was like the doctor's and the hospital's income. And it's re- a lot of times it was really the hospital's income, okay? Because hospital revenue is actually much, 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 much larger than physician revenue. But, but physician revenue is substantial as well, okay? So here we are saying that because of a decrease in claims, because of less elective procedures, yada, 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 that means that individuals, employers, and to a certain extent, government programs are going to have fewer claims. Like, de facto, you can't have one without the other. You can't decrease healthcare spending for that group while maintaining incomes for the other group. It's a zero-sum game. The money has to come from somewhere. I think the answer is, is that they're going to make less. I don't think that that is a popular answer. I don't think it's going to be liked. I could be wrong, but if healthcare costs are going to go down, the providers are going to have to make less. And do you feel like this is going to have a positive or a negative impact on appropriate care? Because on one hand, at this time, unless you really have a situation, you are not going to get prioritized. You know, it's just not the risk is not worth Right. you know, getting an unnecessary stress test. So the only patients that are going to get, for example, nuclear stress tests are the ones that really need it because there's definitely cause to get right. it. So in that way, there could be a positive impact on appropriate care. Right? And there's a crisis right. of appropriate care in this country, so that right. I wouldn't take as a bad thing. On the other hand, physicians are earning less, so maybe, you know, there's some kind of negative consequence, obviously, to them. I guess it depends on whose vantage point you're looking at this. And perhaps those physicians are going to try to be getting anybody they can into these procedures. So they're kind of pushing in order to maintain their revenue. And I know I'm looking at this very cynically, but what do you think? I think it'll be variable. This gets into, you know, the issue of how is the physician workforce today currently set up? The thought that was that the the way the physician workforce was set up right now was not very good. It had too many specialists and too many urban centers. And so if you were, we didn't have enough primary care physicians and we didn't have enough folks in rural areas. Now, like the only thing that, I think pain causes change. Maybe that what we are going to see is a redistribution of the physician workforce away from specialty care and into primary care and away from cities and into more rural uh, places because of the pain 
that is going to be like, you can't get a change in the physician workforce without a change in physician compensation. Like it's just not going to happen. This change in physician compensation, it might change the way the physician workforce in America is distributed. I can't predict how, but it might be from urban to rural and it might be from specialty to primary care. The silver lining here might be that we might wind up actually with a healthcare system more aligned with improving patient outcomes and a little bit less aligned with profiteering. Understandably so. The people that benefited from the status quo are not going to like that. Like, I wouldn't expect them to like that. And if I was in their situation, I wouldn't like that either. But that might happen. Who's to say that it wouldn't? So if we're talking about population health then, let's hop over the acute phase of this. So not talking about, here we are in March 26, depending on where you are some weeks away from the peak of the, the COVID-19 outcome. But if we're looking at this later down the line, do population health outcomes go up or down? Let's just say six months from now. I think you bring up an excellent point, which is the timeline. The short answer is, is that I think they improve. I just don't know over what time frame they improve. And it could be six months. It could be five years. So it could be a much, you know, given the fact that healthcare historically, it's just glacial. Like whatever change you think is going to happen, it takes about, you know, five to 10 times longer for that change to actually happen. I think in the long run, whether that long run is six months or six years, it will get better. In my opinion, that would be a silver lining. One of the issues with employers and employee plans that has been talked about endlessly is that these high deductible plans, while they were invented to give, you know, in quotes, people skin in the game, right? they have not improved outcomes. Right. It's arguable whether they even decrease costs if you look at what's going on right now, or let's just say if you looked at what was going on a month ago. So will all of these patients moving from these high deductible, high premium plans into Medicaid or, you know, on the exchanges, does that have an appreciable impact on patient outcomes? To a certain extent, there are some sort of forks in the road that are coming down the pike. Okay. And one of those forks in the road is how much more government regulation and control are we going to have for healthcare in America, period. It might be much more government controlled than it was in the past. If we go down that direction, then the whole issue of plan design, I think dramatically changes. Because then it does not become an issue of the individual HR department and employer deciding what the plan design is, but it's the government that decides what the plan design is. And you think that why? Oh, as far as I'm concerned, I think all bets are off. If you have the strain and the lack of performance by the U.S. healthcare system, it is a, it's a national security risk, right? So here we have a virus that has tremendous national security implications. Right now, we were not prepared for it, and we are not addressing it effectively. So the question becomes, okay, well, things probably have to change after that. And that could be a dramatic change in terms of, okay, maybe personal protective equipment, manufacturing distribution becomes a highly regulated business, like a utility where, you know, it's, it's totally regulated because they don't, because think about it, why is electricity, to a certain extent, why is, is electricity to, uh, regulated so much? Why is there such a high concentration of automobiles and airplane manufacturing? It's because these incredibly vital businesses are very stringently controlled and have very tight relationships between private enterprise and the government. Maybe that's going to happen. And maybe it's not going to be de facto takeover by the federal government, 
but it's going to be implicit takeover by the federal government in terms of funding and regulations. And if that's the case, the entire structure of the way that people get their healthcare in America could be totally different after this. What you just said there also has a very definite impact on GPOs, for example, who have controlled the supply chain for quite some time and buy most of their stuff overseas at this juncture. Other people are saying this. This is not hyperbole to say that the U.S. healthcare system will probably never be the same after this. Like it's It's going to change big time. You know, one thing that we haven't talked a lot about, well, we've just touched on it mildly, is pharmaceutical products. In the short term, while we're in this acute COVID-19 situation, patients can just probably get their refills. You get all these um, anecdotal stories about patients trying to stock up on their blood pressure medication or whatnot, or, you know, patients with lupus trying to get (laughs) their drugs, which is a whole separate story. But then what happens subsequently? And so obviously, the clinical implications of coronavirus are hugely important. The impact on the structure of the healthcare system is going to get affected, to your point, to pharmaceutical companies, to doctors, to hospitals, to insurance carriers. And oh, by the way, that's going to take a lot longer to play out. It, it probably will take closer to six years as opposed to six months, but it could dramatically change. Last but not least, let's just talk about hospitals for a sec. So I just had a conversation with Dr. Marty McCary. You know, one of the things that he emphasized multiple times very passionately was that right now the, uh, you know, hospitals under are under, especially in, in the hotspots, are under huge strain to increase capacity. And he said at every hospital right now, that needs to be their primary goal. How do you increase capacity so that the influx of patients during these peaks, you know, we're not making choices about who gets the ventilator. Right. Coming out of it, though, okay, so, you know, we've gone over the peak. Now we're on the the backside of the slope. What do hospitals need to be thinking about? Well, preparing for this again, it is the way that a virus spreads from a what's referred to as a zoonic reservoir. In other words, it's in animals and it jumps to people through some sort of mechanism. Like it happened with SARS in 2002. It happened with MERS in 2012. It's happening with coronavirus today in 2020. So here you have three instances over the course of 18 years. It will happen again. Eric, what did I forget to ask you? Nothing. This has been fantastic, Stacey. You're super kind to have me on, and I'm super appreciative to all of your listeners. Thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today, Dr. Eric Bricker. All right. Take care now. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, You will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.